The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thanks and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. If you know anyone who thinks that a weekend spent watching a truly authentic reenactment of a Civil War battle or encampment would really be fun for the whole family, you may want to get them a copy of Michael C.C. Adams' book, Living Hell, The Dark Side of the Civil War. It's not the feel-good story of the summer of 2014, but it's a book that no student of the Civil War can afford to ignore. We'll find out why when we talk with Professor Adams tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina on a beautiful spring evening in May of 2014, Uh, but I will speak only for myself, not for the University of North Carolina system or East Carolina or anyone else, and likewise, our guest tonight will be on his own hook, as we always do it here. Uh, Tonight's show is dedicated to uh, my colleague and friend, David Long, whom many of you know uh, by reputation and or who's 
by by reading his work. Uh, David died last Saturday at the age of 66. He was uh, a professor here at East Carolina University until a few years ago, the author of The Jewel of Liberty, uh, still the standard work on the uh, election of 1864. He was a guest on the show several times when it was first getting started back in 2004, 2005. Uh, David was originally a lawyer who uh, saw the light, went back to graduate school to study history. He did uh, a number of things. He helped found the Lincoln Forum that meets every November at Gettysburg. He was one of the people who discovered the unpreserved and forgotten Anderson Cottage in Washington, D.C., and helped ignite the movement that resulted in it, its current status as an important uh, historical museum and landmark. Uh, David was a dynamic speaker and a passionate teacher and battlefield tour leader and an unforgettable character. He and I disagreed eventually on many things that we both cared a lot about, uh, including politics, uh, college football. He was uh, an Ohio State uh, person and I'm a Michigan man. Uh, we disagreed on whether the Dahlgren raid was really tantamount to an assassination attempt on Jefferson Davis. He said yes, I said no. But I will always remember our long drives up from Greenville to Gettysburg together when we debated those and other topics, and I will miss the chance uh, ever to do that again. So this show is in memory of, of David E. Long. Uh, future shows will uh, be coming up uh, after tonight. We've got uh, next week Randall Fuller from Battlefields Rising is his book on uh, the literature of the Civil War. On June 4th, Rachel Sheldon will join us to talk about politicians in D.C. before the war in her book, Washington Brotherhood. On June 11th, uh, Sergeant Major of the uh, Marvin Nicholson of the reenactment Battery B, 2nd Light Artillery, USCTA, uh, will join us to talk about uh, the topic we'll possibly touch on tonight as well. And on June 18th, our final show of the season, Bjorn Skaptison of the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop uh, will be with us with thanks to Bjorn for being flexible and rescheduling. He was originally to have been on last week, uh, but that show got moved, and I appreciate him uh, uh, being able to switch out like that. Uh, last week would have been a show, but... As uh, listeners, uh, I know you've been waiting all week to find out, uh, two weeks to find out what happened with J.H. Rose Girls High School Soccer. Uh, well, they made the playoffs. That was the good news. They drew their old rivals in New Bern for the opening game. Also good news, but they lost uh, two to nothing. One was an empty net goal, so really a one to nothing game, uh, a close game. Uh, the end of my daughter's soccer career there, thanks to uh, coaches Dameron and Smith for four years of a great experience for Maria, and I will have to start doing this show five nights a week, I guess, because I'll have nothing to do uh, during soccer season next year, and there's no uh, coaches and referees for me to yell at from the stands and embarrass my wife. So uh, we move on from that. Uh, you can find out who's on the show next week and every week from www.impedimentsofwar.org. You can find out uh, how to give money to me and the show if you want to do that. 
what new books are out there that have been talked about on the show. Lots to do there. Uh, but let's move on from that and uh, get back into the 19th century right now with our guest tonight. Uh, he is Michael C. C. Adams, uh, retired professor of history from the University of Northern Kentucky and author of Living Hell, The Dark Side of the Civil War. Uh, Michael, are you there? Well, I'm indeed here. And uh, a pleasure to be with you. I'm sorry for your loss of David Long. The ranks of my colleagues are being winnowed, too, as we become the Silver Haired Brigade. Indeed. Well, I, I, it is a pleasure having you on the show. I remember very clearly uh, when your book, Our Masters, the Rebels, came out. Uh, I don't know if this ages us relatively. I was an undergraduate at the time, and it was one of the first Civil War books that helped me see the difference between popular narrative history that tells what happened and academic analytical history that explains why someone thinks something happened. Uh, and it, it helped me see my way to uh, the difference between the two and, and to getting into uh, the latter. And over the, the years since, it's always been at the top of my shelf, which I keep alphabetically uh, by author. So I, I see it all the time. And it, it's an honor to finally get to talk to you uh, about it. Uh, well, thank you. I, I appreciate that, that it, it, it had a um, good effect with you. I, I wrote it uh, originally as a dissertation at the University of Sussex in England and then uh, revised it into the book. And um, it, it provided me with a lot of challenge. It was a uh, stretch because I was trying to look at you know, some of the psychological questions revolving around generalship in the Civil War, why sometimes Union generals appeared to uh, be intimidated, even though they seemed to have the stronger battalions. So it, it was a fun book to write, but also quite a stretch. And uh, I didn't expect it to be successful, but it was. So that was it, great. It, it's been reissued with a different title, I think. Is that correct? It, it was. Um, Harvard published it originally uh, under the title Our Masters of the Rebels, which was a play on a comment made by Adam Gorofsky, um, a Polish immigrant and uh, Lincoln uh, intimate, I guess. Uh, you'd know that mm -hmm. perhaps more than me. Um, that the rebels were masters taking our leaders by the nose. So I called it our masters, the rebels. And Harvard decided, uh, I guess, not to go into paperback. And so Dan Ross at Nebraska called me and said, um, you know, I can't believe they're letting this go. I want it for my Bison series. And I said, yeah. fine, nobody else is interested. Uh, but he said, I have to tell you, that's the worst book title I have ever seen. So he said, I'm taking, I think it was chapter seven, maybe, or chapter four, I think, Fighting for Defeat. Mm -hmm. um, about the Army of the Potomac, which did seem at times as though it, it fought like the Cincinnati Bengals, just <laughs> well enough to be defeated. And uh, he said, I'm going to call it that, Fighting for Defeat. And I said, fine, uh, great. 
so so that's what happened, and I I, I apparently am um, a candidate for worst title in the world award. Uh, I've I've wondered that about my own book. Did Lincoln own slaves? Uh, I I like uh, that very much. <laughs> I do. That's a good one. And uh, also, all for the Union is a splendid title. You've done better in that department than I have. Uh, my original title for Living Hell was uh, Mother I'm Dying, and that got nixed by um, mm. my editor at Hopkins. So. I, I I think the the current title is very vivid. Let me ask you. Just briefly before we talk about the book, uh, you are retired now. Uh, most retired professors, uh, historians I talk to, say they are busier than they were when they were working. Uh, is that true? It, it really is. Um, I retired in 2003, as did my wife, Susan, who was an uh, English professor at, at Northern Kentucky University and came up with the title Living Hell for me. Um, and, and I thought I would just do some leisurely writing. I've always wanted to write fiction. Um, so I tried my hand at that. Nobody so far has shown any great interest in publishing me. Um, and then Bob Brugger at Hopkins called to ask me for the umpteenth time if I would do a revised edition of my World War II book with them, the best war ever. And I kept saying, no, no, no. And so he said, well, what, what else are you doing? And I, I said, some historical fiction, silence. <laughs> and he said, any nonfiction? I said, well, I've got all these notes I collected over the years on the idea of uh, the human cost of the Civil War. And he said, I, I want to see a prospectus. And we went from there. So to cut a long story short, I'm very busy, and then because I'm weak-willed, having finished this, I gave in and said I would do a revised edition of The Best mm. Forever, so I'm doing that now as well. Right. I, I know Bob, and he's extremely persuasive uh, oh, and he persistent. Stubborn would be a, a good word. That's right. right. Now, the, the gist of this book uh, is that one might say war is not healthy for children and other living things, to quote the <laughs> yes. anti-war poster from the Vietnam era. Right. Um, so let me let me just ask a question. This is from someone who's read and, and is very much taken by this book. Uh, but let me ask, don't we already know that? Don't we already know the Civil War was a horrifying thing? Why, why do we need this book? Yes. It's, it's a very good question. Um, my answer would be that, you know, those of us who study the war in depth um, know a great deal about the suffering of the war. And it, it, it is published. Um, you know, any good volume, for example, dealing with Antietam is, is going to look at the shocking uh, losses there. Landscape Turn Red, I think, is a good example. Mm -hmm. Um, but I felt, and, and Bob Brueger felt, that we could pull together for the general reader, and, and for the general reader, not necessarily always including civil war buffs, who, like you know, academic historians, tend to be very well-versed, but pull together for the general reader all of the suffering, um, 
and uh, perhaps some that's, that's often slighted um, post-battle injuries, for example, that usually get dealt with in medical histories, but don't come into uh, general discussions of the war. So it, it was an attempt to pull all the strands together and say, okay, let's just, as um, Walt Whitman said, uh, look at the cruel war and, and concentrate that on, on that entirely, not as part of a broader vision, but just saying, okay, we, we know this is just a slice of the pie, but we want to just emphasize, uh, as you said in your introduction, you know, um, we, we have a tendency to go to battlefields as though they are um, fun parks for family vacations. They're not the killing grounds. Uh, we should approach them with solemnity and try to remember just how agonizing that conflict was. And, and I suppose one other comment I'd make, you know, being British originally, um, we have always recurred to World War I as, as a terrible moment that uh, scarred the landscape. And, and I think in America, it, it's good to occasionally remember that the Civil War had a similarly traumatizing effect on the culture. So that would be my shot at answering that question. Uh, let me, we're going to take a break in just a minute, but uh, if you could give a, the short version, how did you become interested in the American Civil War? Uh, yes, I, I have a, I suppose it's a corny story. Um, from being very young, um, I was interested in military history. I used to force my father to get books out of the local library on um, his library card that I was not allowed, uh, wonderful illustrated histories of the Franco-Prussian War and this kind of thing. And we were on a family vacation in Scotland. Uh, I was around the age of 12, and I was bored by scenery at that point. I love it now, but I, I was into classics illustrated, the wonderful American graphics mm -hmm. books, um, that full-color, wonderful retellings. And this particular one was the Red Badge of Courage. I was about 12 years old, and, and it just lit a fire like so many, I think, of your listeners mm -hmm. tonight, I can't quite explain it, but I became uh, fascinated by the Civil War, and, and it has been a lifelong interest. I, I've gone on to you know, write and teach on other things, but uh, I'm very happy to come back to the war. It's, it's like spending time with an old friend, if one can say that about something <laughs> that I'm pointing out was so god-awful. Well, there are many ironies and, and paradoxes in it, uh, some of which you point out in the book. We're going to take a short break now and come back in a minute. Our guest tonight, Michael C.C. C. Adams, author of Living Hell, The Dark Side of the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Michael C.C. Adams, author of Living Hell, The Dark Side of the Civil War. It's a book that uh, takes a very non-romanticized approach uh, and looks at uh, the horror of the war. In our first segment, we talked a little bit about uh, why we even need to do this. Anyone listening to this program is read enough to know uh, that the war was not uh, a, a pageant, uh, a reenactment, that it was a, a terrible thing. But, the, uh, Michael, this brings up to me the challenge of presenting the war to readers uh, with the right, uh, uh, I don't know, touch perhaps is, is maybe not exactly the right word. But what I'm thinking of is, I, I've read battle books, I'm sure you have as well, uh, where the author's anthropomorphize the armies and no individuals are killed but uh, Hood's mm-hmm. brigade suffers a bloody nose and uh, mm. uh, you know Patterson's division is is knocked back uh, so these units are somehow injured in, in minor ways but no person is killed and that and that yes. anesthetizes us but on the other hand I've also read ones where 
the authors portray death after death uh, in, in what becomes almost a, a sort of violence pornography. Yeah. Uh, and, and that anesthetizes too after a while. Is there any way we can read and write about the Civil War appropriately? That's a very good question. And um, I, I, I'd like to take a couple of uh, approaches to it. Uh, mm-hmm. First, I think the, the way we avoid you know, the, the first problem of just dealing with numbers is to bring back the participants. And, and that is partly how this book came about. Um, as an administrator and department chair, as you are also, I found at times I could stand no more uh, reports uh, asking me to verify the faculty's social security numbers and that the state tags were still on our steel case desks. And, and I would wander over to the library or if I was at a conference, I, I'd go in the library. And, and I was stunned by the um, electrifying emotion uh, of the people who lived through that war and wrote about it. You know, we often stereotype the Victorians as repressed. They didn't talk about sex. They didn't talk about violence and so on. I found none of that was true, that they were remarkably candid about their experiences. And so I started to collect this. And, and I think that is the first way in which we avoid uh, being anesthetized to let the participants speak. And that's what I try to do. As you know, I, I refuse to use that dreadful expletive sick and uh, I and correct their grammar because I want them to be heard uh, the way they wanted us to listen to them. Now, the second one, uh, I, I think is tougher that we c- we can numb ourselves through repetition. You know, the um, critics often say that youngsters today are numb to violence by the amount of violent video games they play. Mm-hmm. And, and I've asked this question about the war with my own work. Uh, as you know, I. I I went on from uh, the soldiers to look at some other things, the suffering of civilians, the deprivation, uh, the mourning, the grief. But I I do have that question, and and I've even wondered uh, in my own mind, in addition to the fact that I might just turn people off through too much dwelling on the dark side, I, I have the question... Did the war photography um, really help to bring the war home, or did it, as you said, perhaps become so routine? You know, those bloated bodies mm-hmm. uh, in picture after picture, battle after battle. Did it retain its starkness? And I, I'm not sure I have a really good answer to that. I know historians of the photography have have grappled with this, but um, it remains an open question, I think, as to whether repetition does dollars to the, the, the problem. I, I suppose what I would say in defense of trying occasionally to, to just absolutely lay it on thick, as I tried to do in this book, mm-hmm. is there, there are so many countervailing forces in our society that still um, consistently glamorize 
war as a you know action movie or um, something that turns young boys into men, now young girls into women. It can do that, but it can also damage lives, and we need to remember that. In uh, sorry, no that that. You mentioned the photographs and mm. uh, the, and also the video games that, that a lot of uh, people look at today. At Pamplin Park uh, the, on the Petersburg battlefield, uh, Will Green, who directs there, has addressed this by creating a, a film in the visitor center for people to watch uh, that does not have anything particularly uh, uh, upsetting or offensive in it in terms of violence, uh, G-rated as it were. And then he has a separate R-rated version that groups can request. And the special effects are quite uh, uh, low budget, I will say, but almost more horrifying because of that. When limbs are separated from people, and it's pretty obviously fake, but almost more grotesque. I, I, I wonder, uh, compared to the movie Gettysburg you describe in, in the book, uh, shows bodies fly through the air, but they're whole bodies, and you know they're just yeah, stuntmen they bouncing off a trampoline. Uh, they don't show separate pieces of bodies. Uh, is that the way we should go in, in media as well as uh, books? To, towards more honesty, mm-hmm. towards more starkness. It. it a good dose of it might not hurt. It's interesting to me that the Pentagon, um, mm. you know, is, is is very careful about screening the public from looking at what um, projectiles actually do to the human body. You know, we we're, see some flag draped coffins, but. Um, we, we're careful about uh, really showing the whole of it, and it might not be a bad idea. I, I've even thought with Civil War photography, I know they couldn't take action shots of people mm-hmm. rolling around screaming as they lost you know, half a face. But they stop short of some things. You know, we, we have the soldiers' descriptions of gunners, others being blown into shreds of flesh just hanging in the trees. Um, terrible uh, description of a, an artilleryman at Sharpsburg or Antietam, I think, being blown up when a caisson exploded. And he came down as a hunk of meat without eyes, ears, nose, mouth, uh, fingers burnt to the bone, kneecaps showing through the flesh, begging to be killed. Um, Perhaps sometimes we need to look at this, uh, not dwell on it indefinitely, but certainly look at it. Um, I was just trying to think, when I was a graduate student, working, in fact, on our master's, the Rebels, um, I was sent over here by my advisor, Marcus Cunliffe, to do research, and he, he was going to send me to LSU to work under T. Harry Williams, the great uh, but he forgot that and wrote to Clement Eaton at UK, a great Southern historian. So I went to UK. And I'm trying to remember the publisher of Hustler magazine then. Oh, Larry Flint. Larry Flint, that's the yes. man. Was in Lexington. 
And, and, you know, he was being hammered for what I think is correctly termed the pornography of his magazine. But Mm -hmm. he did an issue which which my roommate picked up and I looked at, um, saying, you want to see pornography? This is pornography. Uh, And it was the color pictures of what happens to soldiers' bodies that are censored out before they get to us. I don't know how he got his hands on these, but he said this is the pornography of war. And if you want to call something pornography, this is it. And that startled me into realizing that I did not know a lot that I ought to know if I was going to be a military historian because I realized we don't always get to see it. And I still think that that is something of a problem. Um, You know, newsreel in the Pacific shows... Uh, Japanese soldiers flaring up like Roman candles when they're hit by flamethrowers. Not Mm -hmm. so often do we see our guys. Uh, And somewhat, I think, the public are occasionally culpable of demanding that they retain innocence. Uh, um, One thing I dealt with in this World War II book is that when the Marines decided they would show pictures of the dead, uh, on the beaches at uh, Tarawa and so on, the public rose in outcry and said, how dare you, you know, offend us with those. And one Marine commented, uh, God damn it, if the Corps can stand to die, the public ought to be able to stand to look at it. And uh, mm. it's a point, but, you know, I am like you, rather ambivalent. Um, going back to the early debate over does TV violence produce bad behavior in, in uh, people that they go out and shoot someone, I've never had a good answer to the question. Uh, I, you know, I, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't argue that uh, watching a, a Sunday reenactment uh, is going to certainly cause anyone to start shooting uh, muskets in anger, but I. I attended a reenactment for the first time in quite a while uh, earlier this spring, and I really was put off by the the cheering and uh, lightheartedness with which people watched this. And I thought if, if there were a single live round here, the horror that would break out uh, upon seeing what it did would be unimaginable. Uh, yes, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And and that is the problem. I've occasionally said, and I I don't mean it in in any sense disrespectfully, uh, Mm -hmm. our niece is a reenactor. She uh, does a vivandier, or however you pronounce that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But I have said, unless you load with ball ammunition, and unless the cannon are loaded with grape or canister, you're not going to see what it was like. I mean, we can howl, and oh, there was that particular Confederate reenactor, Robert E. Lee something, who, who said he could do a great body bloat. Yes. But he, but he can't, you know, turn his face purple with great pustules of yellow uh, water, and he can't explode his stomach. Um, and I, I think there is that danger of it becoming too uh, um, hygienic and too romantic. Um, Dave Grossman 
uh, an army psychologist mm. wrote a book called On Killing. And, you know, he noted that um, in World War II, when they just shot, uh, the, the recruits shot at a bullseye target, um, it didn't mean a lot. And I suppose that, you know, this can be a problem with reenactment, that it uh, doesn't mean that we see what happened. That's why in the book, uh, as, as I'm no longer doing performance review or anything, I can play around a bit, um, I did a reenactment of a firing line only using real participants. It was naughty because I, I brought people from all sorts of units who would never be seen together on a firing line, but I brought them together. I didn't in any sense distort what they'd written or what happened to them, but I did a kind of reenactment with the real participants, and, and it's quite shocking. Um, another example of what reenactors cannot do. Um, you know, man with both eyes shot out by a miniball and blood spouting feet into the air. Um, I'm just trying to think as we're chatting of the poet at Wheaton College in Chicago who about 15 years ago wrote a really good book, uh, Gettysburg, a meditation on values or something like that. I should have his name to hand. And, Was it um, Kent Graham? Kent Graham, that's it. Yes. Well done. Mm-hmm. And, and indeed, he makes this very point, doesn't he, that we shouldn't be treating battlefields like Disneyland fun for the whole family. It's, yeah, it's troubling. It, it's, and I, I would also echo what you said about respect for those who do reenactments. Yeah. Uh, the impression I get is that the pressure to do the, the actual battle reenacting is perhaps more from the public or the organizers and that people don't join because they want to play battle, but because yeah. they are sincere in their interest in history, and yeah. uh, and they do learn a great deal and they teach a great deal, uh, and if if they could just do camping and marching and demonstrations, they'd probably be happier doing that. But uh, you know, the, the public will have will have what it wants, I suppose. Yes, and uh, um, I, I do agree with you. It can be educational. Um, Sue and I were at the uh, Citadel in Halifax, Nova Scotia a couple of years ago, and um, some reenactors there were doing a, a British Highland Regiment. And uh, one of the things they did that I had never seen, they were using, and I've forgotten it, it was not a Martini Henry, but one of the very early breech-loading British uh, rifled muskets of mm-hmm. the probably, I guess, late 1860s, early 1870s. And I was startled, you know, we always say uh, they could fire this many rounds from Springfield or Enfield in one minute or so on and so forth. But mm-hmm. this young man, uh, using a, a very early breech loader, probably not as advanced as the Springfield's Custer's troopers were carrying a little bighorn, uh, belted off 10 rounds in under a minute. And mm. it was a very impressive display. And I think that's the kind of thing reenactors can do well, because they do know their stuff. 
And, and we definitely can can learn different things from them. Uh, yeah. We're going to take another short break. We'll come back in just a moment. We're talking tonight with Michael C.C. Adams, author of Living Hell, The Dark Side of the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Talking this evening with Michael C.C. Adams, author of Living Hell, The Dark Side of the Civil War. We've been talking about the, uh, the ways in which, uh, as was famously said, the real war will never get in the books. Uh, how this book attempts to put some of the real war in there uh, in contrast to the uh, sanitized version that one necessarily must get at a reenactment or that one can get from books or movies. Uh, Michael, let me uh, address one point you make in the book very, very clearly. You spend a good amount of time talking about the suffering of civilians, uh, the the privations, the grief, the loss of loved ones, and the actual uh, death, uh, sexual assaults, other things that, that civilians endured. Uh, but in describing that, in talking about the violence against civilians, uh, you, you raise the, the issue of total wars. It's not a focus of the book, but um, that's a longstanding debate in Civil War circles. And I've always leaned toward the Mark Neely argument that uh, total war in the sense of warring against everyone on the other side, civilian or military, 
is what you see in World War II when bombs are dropped and the civilian is in the crosshairs. That's your target. Uh, in the Civil War, there's vast civilian suffering, but it's collateral damage. Uh, uh-huh. Neither side, it aims directly at civilians as a matter of overarching policy. It, it may happen in, in incidents that it's done intentionally, but it's never declared this is how we're going to win the war by killing civilians. Mm. Is it fair to, isn't it important to draw a distinction between those two? Well, I, I tend a little more than you to the school that says, um, particularly Union generals towards the end, um, Hunter might be a good example in the Shenandoah, um, were targeting civilians. They were doing it deliberately. Um, they felt that this would, um, you know, force the South to give up. Um, I think, I've forgotten his name, but one Union officer I quote with Sherman says, you civilians support the war. We are targeting you. So I, I, I think that, from my perspective, it was not all collateral damage. That there was towards the end in 1864 um, some deliberate feeling on the part of Union generals that they had to make the South howl, not just the armies, but the people behind them. Now, how effective that is you know, it's questionable. Mm-hmm. You brought in World War Two, and um, certainly we know that the German blitz on Britain uh, boomeranged, uh, mm-hmm. morale went up because the German Air Force didn't have the tonnage uh, to really flatten British cities. Uh, it, it, it's now argued that the Allied air offensives against Japan and Germany were more effective uh, and uh, deliberately targeting civilians in total war uh, did perhaps shorten the war. Still debated, though. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's even debatable in the Civil War um, when Union generals burnt out civilians and... um, you know, Sherman, for example, evacuated whole whole cities, forced them to leave. Did this break morale, or, or did it frighten people, um, southern leaders, into fighting on? Um, I, I don't know, but I tend a little more than you, I'm afraid, towards mm-hmm. feeling that, that some of this was deliberate. I, I suppose collateral damage is probably not the... Correct word, because I, I wouldn't disagree at all with you that, that Union actions were aimed at civilians. I would, yeah. I'm drawing the distinction between burning someone's house and lining them up and shooting them as yes. uh, uh, Nazi armies did in the Second World War, or for that matter, dropping bombs on their houses while they're living in it, as opposed to evacuating a city and burning it. Yes, uh, yes, I, yes, that, that, yeah. I think there is a distinction of degree there, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think you're right to make that point. Where I think on the part of the South, we cross over a line, as again, both you and I know, 
mm-hmm. is, is with the treatment of black soldiers and their mm-hmm. officers where they do indeed line them up and shoot them if, mm-hmm. if they're not lucky enough to be just enslaved. But we, we have uh, so many accounts coming to light of cold-bloodedly shooting uh, black soldiers and their officers after the action has ended, that, that this is indeed a total war of a very vicious kind. But, but I think it becomes inevitable when a war has gone on long enough uh, that people are, you know, really smiting at the roots of each other's societies and creating enormous fear and uh, trepidation. I, I think Southern has responded so savagely because they were so terrified. Mm-hmm. Last, uh, or two weeks ago, the last time the show was on, uh, I talked with Linda Barnacle in her book on Milliken's Bend, and yeah. it was that was our subject, the, the murder of the, the white officers, the black troops. Uh, let me ask something that, that really fascinated me uh, about your, your concluding chapters. The veterans, uh, you, you described coming home and first being scorned, almost like the stereotypical return of Vietnam veterans to the United yeah. States. Uh, and it was, it's a, it was surprising to me to read the accounts of how the veterans were not necessarily welcomed. And it took maybe 10 years before the Memorial Day parades become a big thing. Yes. But what really got me was your description of how 20 30 years later, as we get toward the Spanish-American War, these people who had been shook over hell, who had lost limbs, who had lost friends, uh, who had seen people lose everything, forget and and become cheerleaders for the next war. Yeah. Are are we doomed as a species if Uh, if that's going to happen? You know, um, as you said that, I, I remembered a comment that Kurt Vonnegut made um, back when we, we had the money to bring in, you know, prominent guest <laughs> speakers to each university. <laughs> and Kurt Vonnegut said at Northern, we so desperately want to survive as a species, we're just not smart enough. Um, and perhaps he's right. I, I'd like to think we are capable of learning um, but that does seem to be the case, doesn't it? Um, I, you know, as I said, like all Europeans, rec- recur to World War One as perhaps for me the most tragic, seemingly meaningless war that, that Europe ever fought. And I've wandered along with Paul Fussell, the American World War Two veteran and mm-hmm. Uh, literary critic who wrote that wonderful book, The Great War and Modern Memory. And he said in it, how could they have gone on four years when it was so absolutely awful? You know, the the first day on the Somme, the British Army in the summer mm-hmm. of 1916, first day on the Somme offensive, by day's end they had 50,000 casualties and they just kept doing it. So I I, I don't know. We are slow learners. And it did shock me when I thought about it for that last uh, section of the book to say, well, well, how long did it take to forget the blood and the muck of the war? By 1876, as you know, having obviously carefully read the book, Walt Whitman has moved from talking about the cruelty of war 
to extolling the death of um, uh, Custer and his uh, troopers as uh, a Roncevaux, you know, Roland and the Charlemagne's mm-hmm. knights dying in glory at Roncevaux, or perhaps uh, the Iliad and Troy. And, of course, he totally misinterprets the action. Uh, he thinks mm-hmm. it was glorious, but, but in fact, uh, modern uh, archaeological research and uh, anthropological research suggests the troopers panicked and, and were slaughtered. Mm-hmm. But Whitman, just uh, 11 years after the war, is celebrating Custer's uh, defeat. So it, it, it is a little bit disturbing. And uh, I, I try not to make, you know, presentist comments in the book, but I know the British Empire in the 19th century going into World War One, um, never drew back from its uh, adventures. And uh, I, I suppose today I'm, I'm troubled when I hear members of the media saying, well, you know, we've got to beep, beef up our forces in case we have to fight Russia or China. And I, I <laughs> phone him and say, have you any idea what you're talking about? <laughs> what this would be like? So our kind of continuing involvement with the um, romance of war does disturb me. It's, uh, you know, I'm a 60s kid and um, I was never going to San Francisco with a flower in my hair, but but I I indulged in some of that idealism. I I hope to see an ending of poverty, disease, and war uh, in my lifetime, and I certainly now no longer hold to that hope. Mm. I, I do think war will carry on. Um, John Hubble, you know, I'm sure you know him, mm-hmm. the uh, ex-head of the uh, Kent State Press and a Civil War historian, mm-hmm. once said to me at a conference, he said, Mike, did you ever think we're just still tribal?" <laughs> we have to keep doing this tribal stuff. And uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I confess at times I'm pessimistic about us. Um, Kurt Vonnegut in that same uh, talk at Northern said that, um, you know, people give him credit for Slaughterhouse-Five having uh, turned kids against war and so on, but he said he didn't think so. He said he thought he'd had all the impact of a large cream pie dropped from a great height. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> well, I, I, I suspect this book may have uh, hopefully more impact than that. I, I, one thing that occurred to me, and, and we're uh, just in our last minute, I'll throw this out and, and uh, maybe we can talk about it at a conference sometime. Uh, maybe the forgetting is necessary because those who don't forget, who, who relive it over and over, are the very people you describe in your your chapters on post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes. Uh, The veterans who can't let it go can't cope. And the only way to survive and cope is to literally forget, yet that sets you up to do it all over again. And and there we go off to Spain. What an excellent point. I wish I'd thought of that myself. (laughs) (laughs) But it's in the book. That is a... 
uh, absolutely spiffing point. I mean, you're absolutely right. What an incredible paradox. Well, it, it, it really is. is. It, yes, so this book is full. if we remember, but if we forget, we're liable to do it again. Um, I, I remember um, Phil Caputo, you know, the Vietnam War veteran, saying mm-hmm. in his book that um, uh, he so wished the Pacific War veterans had told his generation what it was like, uh, because then they would have known before they got to Vietnam. But at the same time, as you say, the Pacific War veterans who did remember it, many of them lost their marbles. They, you uh, couldn't handle it, exactly. They couldn't handle it, and, and they never came back from the Pacific. Um, you know, in 1990, uh, or so, 25% of the men in veterans' hospitals for mental wounds, uh, uh, sorry, for wounds, were, were mental cases. Exactly. 25%. Unfortunately, the, we've run out of time. I'm, I'm sorry to say it's happened too soon as it does each week, but especially today, uh, and, and we've got a break here. But I have really enjoyed our discussion, and this book is uh, a fascinating one that every Civil War student really needs to read, whether they agree or disagree. You, you, you have to, everyone has to engage this book if you're listening to this show. Uh, it's called Living Hell, The Dark Side of the Civil War, and our guest is Michael C.C. C. Adams. Michael, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was an honor, and I got to hear Shokin farewell again. That's a great tune. (laughs) And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 